we have to disconnect the idea of good parenting from health and fitness because people don't have a moral imperative to health. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am chatting with Amanda Martinez Beck. Amanda is a fat activist, author, and host of the Fat and Faithful podcast. She focuses on the ways that fat phobia and ableism have intertwined with American Christian culture. We are discussing Amanda's second book, More of You, The Fat Girl's Field Guide to the Modern World, which comes out this week. So here is Amanda, but first, a quick break. Okay, it's time to hear more of what you are thinking about the show and what you're doing while you're listening. This note comes from Katie. She writes, I just finished binging the whole podcast this week. First of all, thank you so much for keeping me company on a week when I was stuck at home with a sick toddler. You get it. Oh, Katie, I get it. (laughs) Second, I got really uncomfortable in parts, and that felt really important, and I paid so much more attention. I refused to be weighed as a straight-sized cis upper-middle-class white woman at my midwife's appointment this week. I got a curious glance from the nurse, but otherwise no questions. Hooray! It was hard for me. I'm non-confrontational, but I'm trying to learn how to weaponize my thin privilege for good, since I was once told losing weight would fix all of my problems. Thank you. I'm so glad I paid for this subscription. Thank you, Katie. That is awesome to hear. I'm cheering for you. I will link to a piece I've done on whether to get weighed or not weighed at the doctor's office. It's a really complicated issue, but folks with thin privilege, this is a starting point we can use to start advocating for weight-inclusive medical care. So I will put that here. Everyone else, I would love to hear what you think of the show and what you're doing while you listen, and if it leads to any steps along those lines that you take. You can email that to me at virginiasoulsmith at substack.com. You can also post a comment on the transcript of this episode. And if you want to support the show, please leave a rating and review in your podcast player. Those really help people find us. And if you want even more Burnt Toast, make sure you are subscribed to the Burnt Toast newsletter, just like Katie did. You can click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. It is just $5 per month or $50 for the year. You also get full access to the Burnt Toast newsletter, which includes reported essays and my monthly Ask Virginia column. And you become a part of our awesome Burnt Toast community with commenting privileges and our super awesome Friday thread discussions. So go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to learn more. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Virginia. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you, and big congratulations on the new book. Thank Um, you. Why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself, your work, and your family? Okay. I am a fat activist. My middle name is Martinez, which alludes to my Cuban background. My dad was a Cuban refugee, and... So I grew up in a home that was half Latinx, half white, and kind of the melding of cultures there. My husband, Zachary, is a university professor, and we have four kids. And they're in bodies that don't conform to societal standards, most of them. And so I'm doing this work for myself and for my kids. And the things that I do, I have a podcast called Fat and Faithful, which talks about 
Fat Liberation Through a Christian Lens. And then I wrote a new book, which we're going to talk about. And I have an Instagram, which is called Your Body is Good. So in addition to my body image coaching that I do, that's the work that I'm doing right now. That's a lot of different things. I mean, (laughs) not a short list of work. So thank you for all of that. So you and I met probably 2020-ish when I interviewed you for a story on how anti-fat bias was impacting the treatment of fat folks with COVID. And you were in your sort of early recovery at that point from COVID. Mm -hmm. I would love, if you don't mind, to talk a little bit about how that's gone. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, but it has been a long road for listeners to know. I was hospitalized for 40 days and was on a ventilator for two weeks and lost the ability to walk in addition to just all the respiratory things that come along with COVID. And while I was in the hospital, I encountered fat phobia in some very glaring ways and some very systemic ways. And Virginia, you wrote a whole piece on that. But yeah, I am on a good path right now. After relearning how to walk, I have basically been at a really good place and have been off of oxygen since October of 2021. So I was on oxygen for about a year. Wow. And my lungs are doing really well, and I have more mobility than I did even before going into the hospital. And so I credit that to a fabulous doctor who's taken my post-acute COVID syndrome really seriously, or what we call long COVID, Mm -hmm. to help me with getting on the right medicines and specifically to help with the brain fog to get on medicine for that. And I feel like a new person, really. I'm so glad to hear that. I worried about you for a long time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know there are a lot of us who have been rooting for you, and I'm just glad to hear you're in a better place. And also so grateful that you did share your story because it was so important I think for us to continue to follow this past the initial COVID and through long COVID, what that really looks like, what that's like to live with and, you know, what that's sort of all the different things you were navigating in terms of the fat phobia and the ableism. So I really appreciate because I know when you're in the middle of something like that, I know how much additional labor it is to share that and put that out there. So thank you for doing that. I'm curious to hear a little more about what misconceptions sort of came up the most or what do you still find yourself having to challenge or correct with folks around COVID and weight? At the beginning, I felt really guilty for getting COVID because there was definitely a narrative that fat people were at higher risk for developing complications from COVID. And even though those risks were correlated, not necessarily caused by body size. I always felt like people were blaming me and got blamed explicitly by people on social media for catching COVID in a fat body. And so I think that there's still an element of that in 
people still believe that fatness is an underlying condition or a precondition to getting COVID, which it's not. People of all sizes get COVID complications. Mm -hmm. And then long COVID is affecting all types of people. So really seeing that COVID is an equal opportunity virus. We have so much work to do to reframe that conversation. And I think it's people's fear. You know, people want to be able to say like, well, I'll be safe because I can blame this person for getting it. And then maybe I don't have the same, you know, risk factors or whatever. But it's such a callous way to approach this global pandemic. For sure. (laughs) Not necessarily connected to weight bias, but I think one other misunderstanding about long COVID is the effects that it has on mental health. Mm. You remembered watching update videos for me, even from the hospital. And I go back and watch those now and realize just how impaired COVID had me in mentally not being all there. And also encountering heightened mental illness in long COVID. I think that's something that's a part of COVID that people are still not taking seriously, Mm -hmm. that it affects so many aspects of health. And again, there's the stigma, you know, anytime there's a mental component to it, it's very easy to stigmatize that as well. So that just layers into it all. Well, somehow while you've been doing both your own recovery work from COVID and putting the story out in the world, you've also been writing a book. I have. (laughs) So... Let's talk about that. The new book is called More of You. Tell us what inspired you to write this. And I also do want to hear how you got it written during all of this. (laughs) The memory of writing it is a bit of a blur. (laughs) Sounds right. Um, But I have a fantastic editor who walked me through the process very graciously. So the book is called More of You, The Fat Girl's Field Guide to the Modern World. And I realized... Before I had COVID, I just realized, you know what, I've stumbled through fatness, learning how to exist in my today body and how to take up space. I wish that I had some sort of guidebook that could walk through these different things before I had to experience Mm. them. And I didn't have anything like that. And so I wrote more of you to be the guidebook that I wish that I had had when I was first coming to accept my body and not want to take up less space. Specifically, I targeted it towards what I wish I had known in grade school, that I have the right to exist in my body today, that I have the right to take up space, that I have the right to wear what I want and eat what I want, and that I have the right to compassionate medical care. And just stating those things is what I call the Fat Girl's Bill of Rights. It's transformative for me today. I can't imagine how transformative it will be for my own children and the children who get to know these truths that their parents are trying to put into practice in their lives. Like I know that you're doing that work too. One of the things I find most valuable about the book is the way you hold fat phobia and ableism accountable for each other. I think this is a really common tension in the disability and the fat rights communities where, 
we often see fat folks leaning into the, but I'm healthy as this defense against anti-fat bias. I've certainly done it. I kind of understand where that comes from. And I would imagine there may be a sort of parallel experience of wanting to perform being a, quote, good disabled person through your thinness. And I think in just what you were talking about with COVID and your experiences, like we know that relying on health as this sort of marker of virtue is really problematic. But I would love to hear more of your thoughts on, you know, how does this hold us back from making progress on both of these issues? So I first encountered the idea of performative fatness, which whether it's I'm healthy, so I'm a good performing fat person. In a web comic by Stacy Bias, who's a fat activist, called The Good Fatty Archetypes. Mm, love it. And she has, I think it's a list of 12 different ways that fat people can adapt to their environment to prove that they're worthy of dignity. And one of them is the fat unicorn. We're like, I am just fat, even though I exercise all the time. Like I'm just, you know, unicorn. Oh, I'm I'm looking at it now. We will link to this in the transcript. Yeah, the fat yeah. unicorn. <laughs> Healthy eating, daily exercise, perfect labs. Yes. Right. And so she talks about the different ways that you can perform fitness virtue signaling. Mm-hmm. And it's setting up this idea that we have to earn our position of dignity Mm -hmm. to earn our respect. And that's really a very capitalistic idea, which Stacy does talk about Mm -hmm. in her comic. We don't have to earn dignity. We possess inherent dignity. And so to be able to look at a fat body as morally neutral or even morally good takes digging below those good fatty archetypes of, but I'm healthy, but I'm an athlete. In a disabled fat body, there is inherent goodness. And so we have to look at how assuming that someone's health and ability is based on their moral virtue, how that is not a fair assumption. And that's actually ableism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we see this, I'm coming from a Christian lens, so we see this in the Christian scripture when there's a man who was born blind and the people ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus is like, neither. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I really feel that for a parallel to fatness. It's not a moral failing of anyone that someone is fat. Mm -hmm. It just is. And when fat people themselves perpetuate this idea that as long as I'm healthy, it's okay to be fat, then, like I say, if it's not okay for everyone to be fat, it's not okay for anyone to be fat. I'm just looking at how Stacey explains the fat unicorn here, and she says, what does it mean to seek legitimacy for the fat body on the basis of its capacity for health? Who gets excluded or silenced when we do so? And I think, yeah, that's exactly what you're saying. Right. And someone much wiser than me has said that ability is a temporary condition. We are all headed towards disability of some sort Mm -hmm. or another. And we have to separate that from morality in the same way we have to separate body size from morality. Because body size and ability are a lot of genetics. 
systemic issues and societal issues. So we can't just say A plus B equals C when we're looking at a body like that. Another line that really resonated with me from the book is when you wrote that nobody has a moral obligation to be healthy and we don't owe health to our community, our families, or our kids. And that believing that you do is this cornerstone of ableism. I think this is often a line people come up against where they may say, like, it's fine to be unhealthy, but of course we should all be trying to be healthy for our kids. And I think particularly for mothers, right? There's this huge pressure that being a good mother is synonymous with being a mother who can chase your kids around the playground. So the question that I probably get asked most frequently when I talk about being okay with my fatness is, but don't you owe it to your kids to be healthy, to live a longer life, to be with them? There's two layers happening there. One, I'm accused often of being on the verge of death, like I'm just about to keel over, which Post-COVID, okay, there were some moments there, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but just because I inhabit a fat body does not mean that I am more susceptible to early death. And the, the numbers actually show that people in the BMI category of overweight live longer than people in the normal category. And so there's a lot of peeling back layers that we need mm-hmm, to do there. Mm-hmm. So people assume that I'm going to die young, which is really hard to encounter day in and day out. Yeah. When I was young, someone I loved told me like in tears, I just don't want you to die of a heart attack at age 20, which is a very emotionally manipulative thing to say to a teenager and to anyone because none of us is guaranteed another day. (laughs) We're all in the same boat. And my life is lived as much as I can choose in a morally upright way. (laughs) And I define morality as treating my neighbors as I would treat myself. Mm -hmm. So number one, it's not good for mental health to live with that assumption. Number two is to say that I can't be a good mom if I'm in a disabled or quote unhealthy body is really an ableist thing Mm -hmm. to say because there are parents of all stripes in all different levels of ability who are amazing parents. And just because someone's in a wheelchair, we don't automatically assume they're a bad mother. But if I'm fat and walking with a cane, there is that assumption. And it is inherently ableist to say, No, because you don't have full capacity of your body, you cannot be a good parent. Mm -hmm. And this has real consequences because children are being taken from their fat Mm -hmm. parents. It's not something that we're just fear-mongering about. We have to disconnect the idea of good parenting from health and fitness because people don't have a moral imperative to health. It's such a narrow definition of good motherhood, and it's implying that there's only one way to love your kids, that there's a right way to love your kids, as opposed to allowing for this diversity of experiences. 
I'm glad you brought up the issue of how it gets used around parental rights. I did some reporting on that for Slate. And what I heard from lots of folks in the foster system is that it's not always the top reason that parents lose parental rights, but it's something that caseworkers know to look for and that they can kind of add to the list when they're building the case to take. And that struck me as like, in a way, almost more chilling because it just means that if you're a parent going through a really hard time with mental health addiction, whatever, you know, whatever the issues are on the table, that your body will also be weaponized against you in that conversation is really scary. I think a lot of us, and I admit I myself in the past have sort of started and stopped at like, well, of course I want to be healthy for my kids. It's just like, of course you want a healthy baby without unpacking the ableism of that when mm, yeah. children are born with disabilities every day and they are very worthy of our love. So Exactly. I think that we all have this innate desire for goodness. We're looking to be good, to experience goodness. I think a lot of people assume that to have a good body means to have a healthy and fit body. But I like to go old school and look at Aristotle. And Aristotle says that a thing is good when it fulfills its purpose. So this is where the conversation about what is the purpose of my body comes to the fore. And when you say that the purpose of my body is health, then you have to also acknowledge that health is much bigger than just physical mm -hmm. health and emotional health, mental health, spiritual health. And if you just, if you have like an ATV formula and you just pump up the air on that one physical health tire, it's going to be a rocky mm -hmm. road. And so even if we agree at some point that health is the purpose of my body, we have to recognize that physical health or the way that we look cannot be the end all be all. And so I, coming from the perspective that we are all made for relationship with mm -hmm. others, I see that the purpose of my body isn't health or perfection or thinness, it's relationship. And so my body can be good no matter my ability or my size because I can have a relationship with anyone and it can be fruitful and deep relationship. And that's what really keeps me going with my kids when I do feel that shame of sitting in my car when they're playing on the mm -hmm. playground and feeling that mom guilt. I know that, you know, the other 95% of the day that they're with me, we're investing in our relationship. Right. And it's part of my relationship to let them go and experience things that I don't have experience with. I love reframing it around relationships. That's so beautifully put. I think when we treat health as a moral imperative, we wind up applying individualistic, quote, answers to a complex system-wide situation. Because if we see morality as an individual base on an individual basis, which we do, then, you know, A, B, and C, all person A, person B, person C all have the same responsibility to health, but they might have vastly different access to resources. We don't have universal health care. And so that's a big mm -hmm. deal. And then just the systemic racism, transphobia, and fat phobia that exists in our current system makes it look like certain types of people are not being morally upright if they don't achieve some sort of health level that we think they should. 
So you also talk a bit in the book about the anti-fat bias you've experienced in the church. And, you know, as someone who's not Christian, this is sort of a newer world to me and really interesting. So I would just love to understand this a little more. How do diet culture and Christian culture, how do these concepts intersect and how do we start to untangle them? So I grew up believing that thinness was next to godliness, that the smaller I was, the more my body would reflect the submissive woman that I thought God was calling me to be. And there's nothing small or submissive about me. I'm very big and my personality is big. My voice is loud and I take up more space than a lot of people. And so my journey of clawing my way out of kind of the fundamentalist, elitist version of Christianity to find that that's not what God is requiring of me. It showed me that diet culture and Christian culture in the United States have a lot in common. Number one, that idea that being smaller is morally better. And then number two is purity rules. Mm. Christian culture is full of ways that you can be sexually pure, but also there's this idea of being dietetically pure. Oh, wow. And in diet culture, we see that where we talk about clean and unclean mm-hmm. food. And so we're immoralizing food by like bad and good food. All that kind of language is religious language. Now that you sort of spell that out, that makes total sense that that didn't just begin and end with Gwyneth Paltrow, but right. <laughs> has deeper roots. It's fascinating. The big thing that like, I'm reading the the Christian New Testament, and there's a the scene where the Apostle Peter, who's the first pope, right? This really important guy gets this vision of all these different kinds of foods, foods that he's thought was unclean. And God says, don't call what I've made clean, unclean. Mm. And there's this way that Peter applies it. Oh, I can't call people who eat unclean foods unclean either because God has made them clean. And so for whatever reason, there's this thing that we do when we talk about clean and unclean foods, we apply it to the people that eat those things. Yeah, we go right to their bodies. We go straight to their bodies. And that is classist Mm -hmm. AF Mm -hmm. because access to fresh fruits and vegetables and what we, our culture considers as quote, good food. It's just inaccessible to a large swath of the population. Right. And so it enables people to discriminate against the poor, those who live in food deserts, people who eat free lunches at school, like my Mm -hmm. kids. There's just a huge amount of classist behavior there. And of course, racist and fat phobic behavior. So really finding that all food is good food Mm -hmm. has been something instrumental in my journey towards fat liberation. That is so important. Well, we end every show with our segment, Butter for Your Burnt Toast. What do you have for us? What are you recommending? I am lately obsessed with John Batiste, the musician. He is the leader of the band on the Stephen Colbert show, but he is much more celebrated than that. His album called We Are won album of the year at the Grammys this year, and he helped write or did most of the writing for the soundtrack to Soul. Ooh, excellent. The Pixar movie. And I'm just I'm just obsessed. And so I highly recommend 
his new album and also the soul soundtrack amazing uh, we have not watched soul yet we my kids adore inside out but I've been holding off on soul because my four-year-old's in that phase of being very anxious about death. We just have to wait a little bit. But right. again, I think it'll be really great. But, you know, we're just working through some four-year-old feelings about death right now, which is, uh, yeah. there. I have one sentimental kid who laments over the death of yes. me. So She yes. told me the other week that she didn't want me to cut flowers to bring them inside. Like she picked a flower and said, can we put it in a vase? And I said, yes. And she said, but will it die? And I said, well, yes. And she was like, I don't want it in the house then. It'll make me too sad. And I was yes, like, yeah, I feel you. Okay. So strong. <laughs> but I am dying to see Soul. And in the meantime, I can listen to his music. So that's a great recommendation. My recommendation is a podcast. I just listened to the first episode of Ghost Church by Jamie Loftus. Okay. Sarah Louise Peterson, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, recommended it in her newsletter, and I checked it out. It is fascinating. She is investigating American spiritualism, which is the tradition of communing with the dead. It's a fringe religion, I guess is the technical term. I just knew nothing about this whole world other than like yeah, fascinating. Yeah, some people I know on Instagram who do this. Um, yes. And I think it's always challenging with this kind of journalism where you're sort of trying to understand a culture and a world that you don't belong to of whether you're going to come in and completely interrogate it and take it down or whether you're going to you know, where you're going to fall on that spectrum. And she walks the line really nicely. She's very respectful of the people. She is herself somewhat of a believer in some of the concepts, but also has a lot of questions. And it's a really well done exploration where you're sort of allowed to draw your own conclusion. She's not saying it's all garbage. She's not saying it's all true. So Ghost Church, I recommend it. All right. Yeah. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Really loved this conversation. And again, cannot encourage readers enough to get your book, more of you. I also want to say this was like we covered some of the heavier aspects of the book. The book itself is a really delightful read. And Amanda is a very light and fun writer. So I hope folks will check thank it you. out. And yeah, tell us where we can find more of your work and support you. I am on Instagram as your body is good with underscores in between each word. I'm on Twitter at Amanda M. Beck. And I am on the interwebs on Facebook too. I'm, I'm a millennial, <laughs> so good Facebooker. I have a group on there called All Bodies Are Good Bodies and it's a fat positive body neutral space where people can have community apart from diet culture. Well, we will check it all out. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.